Well, good morning and welcome. Good to see you all here this morning and happy post Thanksgiving Sunday. And uh, I'm sure you're all well fed and uh, had a good, good end of the week. Uh, we're glad you're uh, joining us to worship together this morning. If you're visiting with us today, we'd love to know of your attendance with us. There's a little card on our Welcome Center called a Connect Card, and we'd love for you to connect with us and how we can connect with you. Uh, additionally, there is a place for prayer requests. We'd love to pray for you this week, anything that's going on uh, that we could uh, pray with you uh, concerning, we'd love to do that. Uh, today is Harvest Offering Sunday. That means that all of our offering, uh, all that's undesignated, uh, will go towards our Harvest Offering. The two projects we've talked about, uh, one being with the Blazers, our missionary, the Blazers in Fortaleza, Brazil, helping them to buy land in order to build their own church for their church plant. And the other project is for the Postumas in Romania in their camping ministry, uh, which they uh, are raising funds to build a building onto that, uh, that land in order that they might uh, continue developing the camping ministry and be able to have some uh, groups in there and have uh, accommodations, uh, things like water <laughs> and uh, bathrooms and those sorts of things. So uh, uh, any, any, any giving today will go towards that. Uh, also, today is the deadline for the primary ballots to be turned in. Um, those are on the Welcome Center. If you haven't done that yet, today is the day to do that. And then we'll, uh, the nominating committee will take those recommendations, those nominations, and then they will uh, get us a, a ballot together. Uh, and in a couple weeks, uh, well, that'll get done. and will be ready for the annual meeting in January. That's hard to imagine, right? Uh, also this week, we have the food pantry coming up on Friday, and we will be doing the food pantry. We're going to do it like we've done it in the past, probably two times, where the, the people stay in their cars, basically. They come up, and then they uh, receive the food. They won't be coming into the church and walking uh, through everything, so a little bit different. But if you're interested in helping with that, you can see John Forshee, uh, or uh, if you know the, the, the plan there, you know how that usually goes. You can show up at the appropriate time on Friday and, and uh, help out. Uh, on the Welcome Center, there's a, a sign-up for the live nativity. There are some jobs that we still have uh, need volunteers for. On Saturday, December the 12th, we'll be doing a live nativity. That could be a walk-through or a drive-through. It's going to be right out here by the flagpole in that circular drive there. So it'll be a, a, a round uh, thing. And uh, it's going to go four times between five and seven. So it's about a 20-minute kind of program. And so one will start at 5, then 5.30, 6, and then 6.30. So if you're interested in coming, you need to come kind of on the, the hour or the half hour time to, to see the full, the full thing. We'd be glad for you to come. And again, being outside, we have a little more freedom to uh, have people uh, there and be able to space out appropriately. Uh, those are the announcements. A couple things to pray about today. If you've got our church emails this week, uh, two of our our ladies went to be with the Lord uh, this week, uh, Joanne Wagner and Barb Green. And uh, I'll be praying for the, the Greens and the Wagners at this time. Uh, arrangements uh, for either have not been, been made uh, at this time. And so we'll uh, communicate those things as they, they come together. We rejoice with both of them. Both of them uh, lived long lives. Both of them were faithful to the Lord. Uh, both of them uh, wanted to go to be with Jesus and uh, are uh, obviously 
in a, in a, a much greater uh, place, in, in a better state uh, than they were at the end. In both, both their conditions were such that there was not going to be a, a miraculous recovery. Uh, it didn't seem that way. And so we're thankful to the Lord for the hope of heaven. We're thankful for the, the hope of the resurrection of Jesus that makes uh, death uh, not the last word for the Christian. And so we give thanks for that. One other prayer request last night. Uh, yesterday, we learned that Betty Freeman has had a heart attack uh, over Thanksgiving. Uh, she is now in the hospital in Midland, and we learned that she has COVID as well. So we don't know the exact uh, state of Betty. I've not had the chance to talk to her yet. Hopefully, we'll make contact here today, uh, but be praying for her. Thankful that the Lord spared her life from the heart attack, and we'll see what God will do as far as recovery is concerned. With that said, would you please stand with me and let's pray together and asking God's help for these individuals and these families and then asking God's blessing on our time this morning. Uh, Father, we do uh, want to say thank you. Uh, we thank you for uh, your many, uh, many good gifts, uh, how you care for your people. And so God, um, we pray now that you would continue your care as these families uh, deal with their losses, their, their grief. God, we pray that you would be, uh, you would give them the comfort they need. We know that you're present with them. We pray they would know that you're present with them. And uh, God, we pray for those individuals and those families who might need to get right with you. God, there's uh, uh, coming to grips with our own mortality has a way of opening our eyes uh, to what life is about and what we need to be doing or not doing. And, so God, we pray that you might use uh, these events to stir the hearts of uh, these families and friends. Lord, we pray for Betty today, and we're asking for your continued protection over her and healing. We pray that you would help the doctors to know exactly what they should be doing and how to help her, and we pray that, that would be effective. God, we pray for your blessing on our time this morning as we worship together uh, in your word and in song. We pray that you'll receive the glory in all of this, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. Just one, one more note before we get to Jonah. Um, in the month of December, uh, we're going to make a, a, a slight transition in our services, and we're going to have one song that's going to be sung at the beginning of the service, and then one song at, at the end. Um, and uh, we know that you know, not, not everyone's completely comfortable with the singing, and, and that's understood. Uh, we have uh, provided a closed-circuit room in the building. So upstairs in the youth room will be a closed circuit of the service. So if the, the singing, you're not very comfortable with the singing, uh, you can be in that room and uh, view the whole service that way. Uh, if that would be uh, a better uh, situation for you, that'll start next uh, Sunday, December, uh, December the 6th. So Jonah, if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Jonah chapter 4. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's on chapter... Or page 775, 775. Uh, we come to the end of the book of Jonah today. Chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 5 through 10. And as we've gone through Jonah, we've looked at, at Jonah, and, and there's these episodes uh, between God and Jonah um, that, that are, are throughout the book. Really, that's what the book is made up of. And we could see uh, maybe seven of those 
seven episodes, and six of them are kind of this round one and round two that we talked about. Uh, three are in chapters one and two, where Jonah's commissioned, and then Jonah, Jonah flees, and then Jonah with the pagan sailors, and then in chapter two, Jonah's prayer, his grateful prayer. That's kind of round one. Then round two uh, begins in chapter three, where we see Jonah's recommissioned, and he complies. He obeys God. Uh, then we see Jonah with the pagan Ninevites, where he's with the pagan sailors before, now he's with the pagan Ninevites. And then the first part of chapter four, what we looked at last week, is uh, we see another prayer of Jonah. Only this was a, a, an angry prayer. Uh, just look at it again in verse one. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. This is chapter four, verse one. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is it not, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. As we looked at these four verses, uh, we, or these three verses primarily, we saw that, that Jonah was, his displeasure was, was exposed, right? Why was he upset? Why was he displeased? He was displeased because God had shown mercy to the Ninevites. Jonah even goes so far in verse two to explain that the reason he, he did what he did in chapter one, the reason he ran from God is because he knew that God was gracious. He knew that God would, 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 would show mercy to these, these people, and then in verse 3, Jonah expresses his desire for his life to be over. In verse 4, God asks him a question, and he says, do you do well to be angry? He confronts Jonah. He asks him a question. Is, is your anger really justified, Jonah? And we find that Jonah doesn't respond. Jonah ignores God again, which leads then to the final episode where Jonah I learned some lessons about God's compassion in the passage that we'll look at today. Look at verse 5. And Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there and sat under its shade till he should see what would become of the city. So we could say, instead of answering God's question, Jonah went out and pouted, right? Yeah, have you ever seen somebody do that? Right? You ask them a question, they don't want to answer your question, so they just kind of, they go, they go in the other room and they, they, they pout, right? I'm going to take my ball and go home. I'm going, to, I'm going to shut down. I'm going to be quiet. I'm not going to answer your question. I'm going to uh, kind of freeze you out. I'm not going to engage with this. Here we see again uh, Jonah, Jonah leaving, right? In chapter one, Jonah leaves physically. He, he, he tries to get away from God. But here, he, he, he in a sense, he does. He leaves. He, he goes out of the city. Um, and he goes out of the city, and he sits on a, on a hill, and he's watching to see if maybe, just maybe, God might still de destroy Nineveh. Right? That, that's what he went out there to do. He went out there. He didn't like what God was doing, but, but just maybe, just maybe it still would happen. Maybe it would still be overthrown. Maybe they still would get what, what Jonah thought they deserved. In this condition, God moves again towards Jonah. Look at verse 6. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might, shade, might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. 
But when the dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on his head so that he was faint. Probably noticed that there was a, a word that was repeated in each one of those verses. Six, seven, and eight. It's the word appointed. We saw this word back in chapter one when Jonah went into the sea and God appointed a great fish, right? A great fish to swallow Jonah. This word appointed, this is the fourth time, uh, two, three, and four. We see it here in chapter four. This idea of appointing is emphasizing that God is sovereign over all things and he's sovereign in the life of Jonah. Right, that the God was, was doing something here, that God was, was seeking to do something. God's involved. That's what we're, we're seeing here. God didn't just let, let Jonah run loose and do whatever he wanted to do. No, God, God came to Jonah. God was involved in Jonah's life, uh, first by providing for him uh, this plant, that this, this shelter, this, this shade that would come over Jonah to, to comfort him and to bless him. And the response of Jonah to this is that he was exceedingly glad because of the plants, right? So he's in a state of rebellion. He goes out in kind of a pouting situation, uh, and God comes to him and provides shade for him. Now, contrast Jonah's exceeding, being exceedingly glad with verse 1, where it said, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. So Jonah was displeased exceedingly that God would save Nineveh, but he was exceedingly glad that he was saved by a plant. Right? Do, do you see the, the asymmetry here? Do you see how illogical his responses are to what is happening in his life? Sin skews our thinking. And then we read verse 7, that God says adversity he sends discomfort. And so he sends this worm and the worm attacks the plant. And then verse eight, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on his head so that Jonah, um, on Jonah's head so that he was faint. Finally, God sent suffering. God sent suffering, a scorching east wind and the sun beating down on Jonah. God's getting Jonah's attention again. That's what, that's what we're seeing here. Now, this might seem cruel, right? Uh, a little blessing, a little adversity, a little suffering. That, that might seem uh, kind of cruel, but Tim Keller observes this. Sometimes God seems to be killing us when he's actually saving us. The things that God was doing in Jonah's life were to, to save him. They were to wake him up. They were to draw him back. They were to help him recognize how, how ridiculous this is and to see, see what is going on. But Jonah was ignoring God, but as we've said many times, God would not ignore Jonah. And even still, Jonah responds in verse 8. And he asked, that's Jonah, he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Like this is this is unbelievable. This is very bizarre, right? It's showing to us how messed up our thinking can become when we are out of alignment with God. When our loves, when what we want are disordered, we do not see the world right. 
This is the third time that Jonah has wished for death over life. And what's the common denominator in all three times? It's when Jonah isn't getting what he wants. When the life that Jonah wants to live isn't the life that he gets to live. What does it say? Well, I don't want to live anymore. It's either my terms or, or no terms, right? It's either my terms or, or, or nothing. Yet that is not the reality of life. There's a caution here for us when we come to think that life outside of God's will is to be preferred to the life within God's will. There's a real danger there. If we move into that place, we have tragically missed what life is really about. We somehow replaced ourselves as the center of the story. We've come to think that this is really about me. This is really about my happiness. This is really about what, what I want to do with my life, about how I think life should be going, how, how, what, what, what pleases me, what brings me joy, what brings me a satisfaction. See, when Jonah put himself in the center, he missed out on what God was actually doing. God was still at it. He was still relentlessly pursuing Jonah. And in verses 9 through 11, we read the last recorded interactions between God and Jonah. Look at it in verse 9. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? The New American Standard, do you have a good reason? Do you have a good reason to be angry for this plant? God asked the question again here in verse 9 that he asked in verse 4. But this time, instead of ignoring God, Jonah actually answers. Look at the rest of verse 9. And he, that's Jonah, said, yes, I do well to be angry Angry enough to die. Really? Angry enough to die over a plant, right? God here is, is, is instructing Jonah. He's instructing him with these questions. Uh, they're really meant to be basically rhetorical questions. Like, of course you're not angry enough to, to, to die over this plant. Of course you don't have a good reason to be angry about this, this plant. He's drawing out Jonah. He's drawing out Jonah's heart. He's showing him just how ridiculous he is being. See, the first time Jonah's anger um, was about God's plan for the Ninevites, right? What God was planning to do uh, with this message. But, but now here, it's about God's plan for the plant, right? He was mad about God's plan for the Ninevites before. Now he's mad about God's plan for, for, the, for the plant, that this plant wasn't going to be, be there for him anymore. See, Jonah's heart was so messed up. It was so hard. His anger was so misplaced that he didn't even see what God was doing. He was so blind. Sin blinds us. Sin makes us stupid. It, it causes us to, to not be able to see things rightly. That, that is what sin does. Here, the, the one whose message led to a nation repenting would himself not repent. And here the one who shared God's love shows no love, no love for anybody but himself. God rebuked Jonah by stating the reality here in the next few verses. Uh, not Jonah's perception of reality, but reality. Sometimes you hear people say, well, perception is reality. Well, not, no, no, reality is reality. <laughs> your, your perception is not reality. There is a reality and it's not your perception, it's not mine. There's actually a reality, there's actually a truth, and God wants Jonah to understand that the way you're perceiving this thing is wrong. 
Your perception of reality is not true. And, and I'm trying to, he's trying to draw him out to show him the reality. So God confronts Jonah in verses 10 and 11. And he says this, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? God is drawing this, this comparison between the, the pity that Jonah is showing to this plant and the pity or the mercy or compassion that God is showing to the Ninevites. He's showing Jonah how ridiculous this actually is. The Lord concluded here by confronting Jonah's illogical anger with a rhetorical question. In verse 11, it's a, it's a rhetorical, it's meant to be a rhetorical question. Sometimes stating a position out loud or sometimes writing it out uh, betrays or portrays or exposes its shortcomings, right? So by, by the Lord laying this thing out for Jonah, like he did in verse 11, it's meant to say, well, of course it's not the same thing. Of course I shouldn't have this kind of reaction to that. Of course, my pity is not to be compared with the Lord's pity of the Ninevites. It's incomparable. It's obvious. But it wasn't obvious to Jonah. Verse 11, it says more than 120 persons, 120,000 persons who do not know their right from their left, right hand from their left hand. Uh, this could either be they're uneducated or children. In either, either case, um, the Lord is making this, this case that there are people who, who uh, I, I want to show pity to. They, there's a reason why I would show them compassion. It, it, you, you don't think that's legitimate. You don't think that's right. And then, if you look in your Bible, there's no verse 12, is there? There's no chapter 5. The story ends kind of abruptly. Kind of um, uncomfortably, the story ends without a resolution. It ends without a response from Jonah. Now, some have hypothesized about how Jonah may have responded, but that's conjecture at best. The text does not tell us what Jonah did next. It can be uncomfortable, but, but know that it's not a mistake. It wasn't like someone should have kept writing and Jonah just forgot to keep writing if he was the writer here, or, or he didn't tell everybody the rest of the story, so they didn't know what to write. It's not a mistake. The, the, one of the reasons why it's left this way is that the, the, the we as readers, we're left with the question. We're left with, with this situation. We're left with the, the issue at, at stake here. We're left with God's questions to Jonah. We're left with thinking about God's compassion and his mercy on other people. We're, we're forced to recognize how merciful God has been, how merciful God is. Jonah was stuck in his sin and he does not respond. We do not see a response to God here. And this ought to be a caution to us. 
It ought to be a caution as the old quote goes, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. I grew up on that quote. (laughs) Some of you may have grown up on that quote too. I don't know who it's from, but it's an old quote and it's true, isn't it? As the story ends, we see Jonah, and Jonah's outside the city. He's, he's, he's on the outside looking in. He's in a rebellious state. He won't join in. He won't come back. He won't uh, engage with God. And we may not know what Jonah did, but, but we must ask ourselves what we will do. What will we do with that? Well, what do we do when God comes to us and confronts our wrong thinking? What do we do when, when we're in a state of, of anger? What do we do when we're rebelling against God and we think God is, has done wrong by us? And God comes to us clearly and with, with great care. It expresses to you through his word the truth. What do you do? In the New Testament, there's another story, a parable that Jesus tells that also ends without a resolution. It ends kind of abruptly. It ends without uh, a a nice bow on it, so to speak. And in this parable in um, the book of Luke, we can actually see some of these very things that we see in Jonah. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 15. If you're using a pew Bible, that's page 874, 874. Chapter 15 of the book of Luke actually comprises three parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son. Most of us probably know the parable of the prodigal son. But in verse 11 of chapter 15, Jesus says, there was a man who had two sons. And he goes on to tell about the first son, the younger son. Most of us, again, know this story. The younger son is is foolish. He's rebellious and he's demanding. He, He wanted out of his family responsibilities and he wanted to go live his own life. He wanted to do what he wanted to do. So he demands of the father his inheritance, uh, which, by the way, is, is saying to your father, I wish you were dead. That's basically what he's saying to his dad. I want your money. Um, the father actually does give him his inheritance. The son leaves. We learn that he lives a reckless life. He blows all the money. He comes to the end of himself. He experiences the consequences of his sin He recognizes that he was wrong, and he comes home contrite. He comes home repentant. And guess what we see the father do? The father welcomes him home. In fact, the father runs to him. The father embraces him. He weeps. He kisses him. He brings him back into the house. Later in the parable, the father says that this, this son was dead, but is now alive. The, the lost has now been found. This outsider now has been brought in. Just take a moment and think again about Jonah 
in Jonah chapter 1 and 2, Jonah's the prodigal prophet. Right? Jonah's the, the rebel who, who, who pushed back against his father, who went his own way, who lived his own life, who suffered the consequences, who, who hit rock bottom, who cried out for help, repented, and was delivered by God. Having received God's mercy and grace, we would think that Jonah should have been ready to extend God's grace to others. See the similarities there? Now, sometimes when the par- this parable is preached, that's about where the, the preaching ends. We end with the prodigal son. But as you heard me read verse 11 of chapter 15, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. If we ended with the, the younger son, the, the parable ends happily, right? The younger son comes home, hooray. Everything seems right in the world. And we go on about our life. We recognize that God has, has mercy and forgiveness for, for rebels, for, for those who have gone their own way. And that's a great thing to know. But the story actually continues, and the parable probably would be more accurately entitled the parable of the two sons. Because in verses 25 through 32, we learn a little bit more about this other son, the older or elder brother. So the elder brother is coming home from the field when he learns that there's a party going on. Uh, He inquires about who the party is being thrown for, and he finds out that it's for his younger brother. The foolish, the wayward, the rebellious, the, the prodigal younger brother who had finally returned. He heard of the father's welcome and how he rolled out the proverbial red carpet for this son. He killed the fatted calf, which was kind of a big deal. He gave him a robe, he gave him a ring, et cetera, et cetera. You can look at it in verses 22 and 23. But then we see the elder brother's response. The elder brother does not respond like the father. We, we don't see any joy. We don't see any running. We don't see any weeping. We don't see any embracing of the younger brother. Rather, what we find in the response of the older brother is anger. So much anger that he would not even go into the party. I'm not going into that party. I'm going to stay out here. In verse 28, it's such a significant thing that the, the, the older brother wouldn't come in that the father goes out from the party to engage with the brother which actually would have been socially uh, awkward for the host of the party to leave the party in order to try to uh, negotiate with a family member in order to bring him back into the party, right? You might be able to kind of just feel that weight, that, that family tension, if, that were, if you might find yourself in that situation. But the elder brother complained to the father, right? He complained to the father that basically the younger brother didn't deserve this. The younger brother had done nothing to deserve this kind of treatment. After all, it was the elder brother who had stayed home. It was the elder brother who had obeyed. It was the elder brother who did the right thing. He was the one deserving the reward. Verse 31, the father appeals to the elder brother by explaining to the elder brother that all that the father has is actually his. Meaning the younger brother already took his inheritance. Everything's yours, man. 
But the elder brother was unmoved and refused to be part of the celebration. And he stayed outside. That is where the parable ends. With the elder brother outside. In Jonah's chapter 3 and 4, we see Jonah as the elder brother. Who was critical. Who was self-righteous. Who was angry. As an Israelite, he saw himself as deserving of God's grace. And those others were only deserving of judgment for their wickedness. Jonah wanted grace for himself and justice for everyone else. So what are we to make of all of this? Well, we tend to fall into one of these two camps, don't we? Sometimes we have been in both of those camps at times in our life, right? This younger, prodigal, unrighteous condition, or the elder, the, the legalist, the self-righteous. And quite frankly, both are very dangerous and both are real. In this parable, according to the customs of the day, the father would have never went to find the younger son. That's not his role. He would not have gone out to find him to bring him home. But do you know whose responsibility that would have been? The older brother. The older brother would have had the responsibility to go and to bring his brother home. And in this parable, we see that the older brother doesn't do it. He doesn't bring him home. His response to this younger brother coming home and being restored actually gives us insight into his own heart. What we find is that the older brother believed in what's called a works-based righteousness, which means that, that what I do makes me deserving of what I get. And so the older brother looks at the younger brother and says, you haven't done anything. You haven't done anything deserving reward. So you shouldn't get the reward. But I, I'm the one who stayed here. I'm the one who's done, done, done all the work. I've done the right things. So Father, why aren't you rewarding me? Why am I not getting that reward? In reality, the reward was never based on what they did, their works, but on who they were as sons. Guess what? That's true for us. You and I don't earn God's favor. We don't earn reward. It's grace. See, religion tells us that we must do in order to be accepted. But the gospel tells us something much different and much greater. That because we are accepted in Christ, therefore we do. Meaning, we don't live for grace, we live from grace. Meaning, our life isn't lived in order to get God to love us, it's because God loves us that we live the way we live. You don't earn grace, that wouldn't be grace anymore. Grace is unearned, it's unmerited, it can't be earned, that's what makes it grace. As we read this parable, we can't help but see that unlike this elder brother who did not go and restore the, the rebel to the father, there is one who did. Jesus, we find, is our better older brother who came 
to us and he came for us. In John chapter 1, verse 14, John writes, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Or in a paraphrase of that same verse, it goes like this. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. God came for us. God came to us through his son. He came for us. He became an outsider in order to save outsiders. As we think about Jonah, we see the, the elder brother-like self-righteousness. Can't we see that? As he would not even weep over the city of Nineveh, but he went outside the city hoping to see the judgment of God fall on them. In contrast, Jesus not only wept over the city as he came into Jerusalem, but he went outside the city to suffer the judgment of God for our sins. He took on the judgment of God on our behalf in order that we might be brought in, in order that we might be saved through his death. Jesus is the true and better Jonah. So then, how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as, a, as an outsider longing to be welcomed in? Well, there's good news for you. There's great news for you here that you can be welcomed in by the Father. You can be welcomed in by the Father through the Son. That's in fact why Jesus came, to seek and to save that which was lost in order that the lost might be found. Or maybe you see yourself as the elder brother who believes your works merit your reward. If you're in that condition this morning, hear this, grace is not earned. For by grace you have been saved. Salvation of God comes by the grace of God, not by your works. We tend to look down on, on prodigals that are among us uh, because their sins aren't like our sins. Some of us might look at the parable of the prodigal son or even Jonah himself and say, well, I would never do that. I'd never run like that. I'd never blow everything like that. I would never live a life, a reckless life like that. But whether it's the prodigal or the older brother, the need is the same. The need is the same, and it's righteousness. And not our righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. Not self-righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. It's the righteousness of Jesus himself given to us by faith in Christ. It's because of the work of Jesus that we can be welcomed in. It's because of the work of Jesus that we can receive grace, not because of what we do, but because of what he has done. So if you, if you have yet to come to Christ this morning, we invite you. We invite you to repent and to believe, to be welcomed in. If you have, then rejoice and rest in Jesus who is your righteousness. Pastor Scotty Smith says, it is finished, both his part and ours. We don't do to be accepted. We've been accepted through faith in Christ. And in response, may we live for his glory. Would you pray, Father? We give thanks uh, this morning for your kindness to us, for your compassion, for your mercy. As we read the story of Jonah, 
We see how you've cared for him and how you cared for the pagan sailors, the Ninevites. God, how your grace extends to, to all who would repent and believe. God, we, we ask that you would help us to respond appropriately to those truths about you. For those who have responded, we, we've, we've believed, we've, we've recognized our need. God, help us to live, live from grace, and not continue to live as though we need to keep our salvation or we earn our salvation. Understand that we are saved by grace, we are kept by grace. Help us to live in response. God, we do pray for those who may have yet not come to faith. Maybe they don't think they're worthy of it. Maybe they don't think God could save them or love them. Yet, Father, as we read the Bible, we find that the Bible is, is written to sinners and sufferers, failures, people who, who aren't good, people who need help. In fact, that's why Jesus came, for the people who need help, which is all of us. I pray for those here this morning that they might see how good God is, how his love is available to them. I want a time of year to recognize the birth of Jesus, the coming of Jesus in order to save the world. Maybe God, would you move in their heart today and cause them to believe? We need you. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Oh God, you